This episode of Navarra Live is brought to you by listeners like you. Thank you. Welcome to Navarra Live. I'm Michael Walker and unusually for a Thursday, I'm joined by Aaron Bastani. How are you doing, Aaron? Michael, I'm very well, thank you. I say that I'm somewhat tired, but, you know, reading tonight's scripts, getting excited about the show we've got ahead, getting to discuss all these things with our wonderful community here on YouTube, I felt suddenly invigorated, energized. There is no stimulant like the show notes for an episode of Navarra Live, um, apparently. Uh, Tonight, we are going to be talking about new home office figures, which show the backlog of asylum applications has hit a record high. Um, Also, GCSE results for England have been released today, and so has Labour Party membership figures. And we'll see how many people still want to be involved in Starmer's party. Um, Stay tuned for all of that. But first, we'll be discussing the developments around the death of Evgeny Prigozhin. If you're going to mount a short-lived mutiny in Vladimir Putin's Russia, don't then get on a private jet in Russian airspace. Um, That appears to be the lesson we can draw from the fate of Evgeny Prigozhin, who died yesterday in a plane crash 180 miles north of Moscow. This is footage of the plane falling from the sky. Um, It was carrying 10 people, seven of them passengers, three of them staff. Among the passengers was Prigozhin, leader of the Wagner Group of Mercenaries, and Dmitry Utkin, his right-hand man. Um, It's still unclear precisely what brought the plane down, but analysts have indicated the manner of its fall suggests it being shot down from outside, um, as opposed to there being a bomb on board. Um, And as for where the flight was going, there are unconfirmed reports from Russian media that Prigozhin had just met Russian defence officials in Moscow. The plane was going between Moscow and St. Petersburg. Until recently, Evgeny Prigozhin had been a close ally of Vladimir Putin in the early noughties. He served as the Russian leader's chef, um, but he went on to lead the Wagner Group, who have fought in conflicts in at least 10 countries, including Ukraine, Syria, Sudan, Mozambique, Mali, Libya, and Sudan. The Wagner Group have functioned as a, you know, on the one hand, a private army, but also as a group Putin could use to do his dirty work at arm's length. Yet that relationship broke down over disputes about the management of the invasion of Ukraine. The BBC gave this useful summary of what followed. It's two months to the day since the Wagner chief launched what he called his march of justice, his mutiny, the insurrection by Wagner forces who'd been fighting on the Kremlin side in Ukraine. They rolled unopposed into the city of Rostov. Their demands, the removal of Russia's senior military leadership, who they blamed for setbacks on the battlefield. There were these extraordinary scenes as the paramilitary chief admonished Russian generals. And then they marched on in the direction of Moscow in a direct challenge to the authority of President Putin. The Kremlin leader called it treachery. Russia, he said, had been stabbed in the back. The mutineers would be punished. But by evening, a deal had been done to end the insurrection. Even though Russian servicemen had been killed, there would be no charges against Yevgeny Prigozhin and his Wagner troops. They would have to leave Russia, but the agreement left the Kremlin looking weak. So the agreement left the Kremlin looking weak, Vladimir Putin Humiliated, that of course means he had the motive to take out Prigozhin. He also had the means. Um, We know Vladimir Putin has the means to take out his enemies because he's done it many times before. Um, But that hasn't stopped his allies pointing the finger of blame elsewhere. A former Putin spokesperson has claimed Evgeny Prigozhin was assassinated by Ukrainian forces as a gift for Zelensky to celebrate Ukraine's victory day. But Zelensky today gave short shrift to that theory. 
First of all, we had nothing to do with it. Everyone knows who had something to do with it. You know, when Ukraine asked the countries of the world for aeroplanes, we didn't have this in mind. We had something else in mind. We needed support. Although, having said that, it doesn't hurt. There has still been no official statement from the Kremlin as to who was behind the attack, but Putin has offered Prigozhin's family his condolences. Um, Aaron, if you'd organised an abortive coup against Vladimir Putin, would you get on a private jet in Russian airspace? Absolutely not, Michael. You know, uh, we work in, a, in an organisation, as I'm sure many of our, uh, our viewers and listeners do too. Project management can really raise the temperature. People can get upset with one another. It happens. Uh, but falling out with Vladimir Putin is not the same as having an argument over Slack or Microsoft Teams. So, I, I, you know, I think it was a matter of time before this, before this happened. And realistically, in a, in a country like Russia, um, the same with Iran or the same with Saudi Arabia, countries which are other, you know, managed democracies or autocracies, uh, it really is a case of if you launch a coup like this, either you will die or the um, intentional target and the, the purpose, the person you would like to remove, they will die. One of you has to die. You know, classic uh, Machiavelli, the prince. Um, so quite predictable, uh, but the nature of it's also quite strange. Like you say, the inference you, you were sort of making there with the question you asked me is that the Prigozhin see this coming. Because, you know, it seems to me that he, you know, he almost modeled himself as uh, Stephen Seagal, Michael, you know, I, I had to rack my brains when I first heard of this guy, you know, about a year ago, the idea of a chef leading uh, a country's extraterritorial operations. And he was the only sort of action star who came to mind. Um, but yeah, a very, very predictable yet strange event. And uh, equally predictable is the fact that the Kremlin are trying to pass it off as nothing to do with me, Gov. Well, it's interesting, is it? Because I mean, in a way, you know, it wasn't necessarily a failed coup. Now, this is sort of an understanding I got from an interview I did on, on the Sudan conflict, where sort of um, an analyst I was talking to was saying, all of these, you know, what look like coups, they're actually um, people sort of struggling to get more leverage. So it's sort of say, look, you have to listen to me. I can at least threaten a coup. You know, it's, it's sort of demanding a seat at the table so that you can have a stronger negotiating hand. Now, it seems to me that the, well, the coup or the, the uprising, whatever we want to call it, the revolt from the Wagner Group two months ago, there was no real chance that that would sort of topple Vladimir Putin and take over the Russian state. So it does seem like that probably was, you know, Prigozhin looking for leverage. And I suppose if you're looking for leverage, you do assume you will have some sort of future in that country. So I suppose what this is suggesting, the fact that he was flying between Moscow and St. Petersburg, is Prigozhin maybe thought that that strategy was beginning to work. Um, he had sort of asserted that he has his own interest and his own claim to authority in, in Russia. And he felt that he was being brought back in to take part in certain projects, which we, he have which he might have more control over than he did previously. He was annoyed um, about the top brass in the Russian military because he thought they weren't following the strategies he wanted to. So, so potentially he, he was sort of you know, on cloud nine thinking, yes, I've tried this coup, it's working really well. They're inviting me back in the fold. I'm going to be more important this time. And then boom, um, his plane gets shot out of the sky. It does seem um, like a bizarre decision to make, but I suppose that's, 
that's the most I can make sense of it, I think. He, he thought that his uprising had given him more power, more leverage, and, and that's why he felt that he was you know, safe flying in Russian airspace. Of course, um, that was not to be. And um, what does it mean for the Ukraine war? This is analysis from Dan Sabat in The Guardian. Yevgeny Prigozhin apparently being killed on the same day that it emerged General Sergei Surovikin had been relieved of his command of Russia's air force means the two most effective leaders in the first phase of the Ukraine war are now gone. Their removal a victory of sorts for the old guard at the Kremlin. The Wagner Group, headed by Prigozhin, led the capture of Bakhmut, Russia's only battlefield gain so far this year, and it was his ally, Surovikin, in his short period of overall command in Ukraine, who began building the defensive fortifications that are seen as so important to the invaders' position today. However, the conduct of the invasion has changed since the fall of Bakhmut and Prigozhin's brief failed rebellion at the end of June. Wagner's 15,000-strong light infantry force has been absent from the battle since late May and after the rebellion has been effectively broken up. Surovikin already demoted from overall command, has been out of commission and possibly imprisoned since June, given his close relationship with Prigozhin and his presence in Rostov, where the short-lived Wagner march to Moscow began. Um, so they've taken out, obviously, um, the leader of the Wagner group, and they have demoted or sacked um, his top ally in the official, the formal Russian military. Now, Sabah says this means the position of longtime Defence Minister Sergei Shoigu and the military chief of staff, Valery Gerasimov, has been consolidated. Um, Aaron, Putin has shown, uh, you know, beyond all doubt, I think, that he can take out any of his critics. You know, no one is above reproach um, if they try and cross Vladimir Putin. Is that a sign of strength? Or, you know, is, is, the, is the, well, it's, it's a bit ridiculous to say the mask is off because the mask has been off for a while. Um, I suppose before I preempt your answer, um, does, does this just prove how powerful Putin is or is there also sort of a sign of weakness here? I don't think it's a sign of weakness in the slightest. I mean, I think that's, that's obviously a nice way to spin it. But the point is that the, the, the Putin project in Russia is, you know, continuity czarism when he sought to... Uh, sort of justify the invasion of Ukraine or talk about Russian foreign policy interests, he puts himself in the same breath as Peter or Catherine the Great. So um, I, I don't think this is, oh, he's not, you know, he's not playing a, a more sort of collaborative sort of game here. That means he's weak. I, I think that completely misreads the situation and just the nature, the cultural nature of Russian politics over the last sort of several centuries, frankly. Um and I think also that, that that goes back to the point you made earlier on, Michael, about how actually this is people playing for leverage. And, you know, this is something I heard about in Sudan or elsewhere. Russia is not the same. You don't do this in Russia, Michael. You know, that, that is a, you know, a very long history of, of concentrated power right at the top and how politics operates. It is, it is, is not like that. Um, I, I found it quite funny as well, Michael, the way you, you talked about... Um, uh, Sorovakin. Now, where's he gone? Maybe he's in prison, you know? Again, it speaks to such an alien political culture to our own. We haven't seen him on Instagram for a few months. Maybe he's in prison. Um, I, I think as well, you know, there's a very sui generis nature to Russian politics and Russian military culture because it has aspects, obviously, of a, of a global North country, highly advanced, technologically advanced country, but then incredibly, incredibly different to the sort of liberal democratic norms or even... Um, you know, what are called the polyarchical norms of Western democracies. So we like to talk about ourselves as liberal democracies. What does that mean? We're liberal. We believe in property rights, individual rights, rule of law, also democratic, popular sovereignty. Frankly, we're often not that democratic. 
but park that for a moment, we're certainly more democratic than Russia. Uh, but also, we're a polyarchical society, which is we have a distribution of power in various parts. You have the media class, you have professionals, the sort of the bourgeois, you have elite business interests, you have the political parties. Um, in the US, you have obviously, you know, you can talk about it in a very different way. You can talk about centers of power with regards to energy production um, or the movie and cultural industries or finance in New York. In Russia, it's very different. Okay, it's not a polyarchy. Uh, there, are, there is not a distribution of power between different players, or if there is, it's certainly nothing like what we see in Western Europe or North America. So um, very different. And, and this idea that, well, they were responsible for Bakhmut and, and the only sort of accomplishments of Russian arms this year, which is true, I mean, still, that, that's still in, in the grand scheme of where the Kremlin would like, would like to be isn't all that impressive. And I, I think in terms of the, the sort of the reading of the tea leaves where people say, well, this is good for this person, it's good for Valery Gerasimov, and it's good for Shoigu, but it's bad. Look, Churchill, who I won't often quote, Michael, he had a great quote about Russian politics. He said this, Kremlin political intrigues are comparable to a bulldog fight under a rug. An outsider only hears the growling, and when he sees the bones fly out from underneath, it is obvious who has won. So, yeah, Kremlinology was always a difficult game, and I think now in the 21st century, it's almost pointless. Well, I suppose I suppose we're seeing the we're seeing who was victorious after the event because they've been shot out of the sky. I suppose so that would conform to to what Churchill was saying there. Um, let's move on to something which I suppose is is somewhat hidden from view. I don't think the reporting on it is is necessarily that frank, but also there are satellites, so we can see um, who is where in Ukraine. And Ukraine's counteroffensive doesn't seem to have gone very well this year. This is the current state of play in terms of who controls what areas of Ukraine. Um, as you can see, that basically looks the same as the maps we were showing you at the start of the year. And compared to Ukraine's ambitions, which were to breach through Russia's land um, corridor to Crimea, it looks fairly disastrous. Um, and that seems to have taken its toll on the public mood in Ukraine. The Economist magazine, which has been very supportive of Ukraine in the war, has said the sluggish counteroffensive is souring the public mood in the country. And they write this. The public mood is somber. Criticism of Vladimir Zelensky, the president, has increased, and the reasons for the dissatisfaction are clear. Having once promised a march to Crimea, occupied and annexed by Russia since 2014, the political leadership in Kyiv now emphasizes more realistic expectations. We have no right to criticize the military sitting here in Kyiv, said Serhii Lechenko, a spokesman in the presidential office. He likened frustration with the speed of the counteroffensive to impatient customers waiting for their iced lattes in the capital's many hipster calves. This isn't a horse you can whip to go faster. Every meter forward has a price, has its price in blood. Um, later in the piece, the economist makes this admission, which seems quite significant to me. For young men in constant danger of being served conscription papers and sent to the front, the pressure is particularly intense. Those keen to fight volunteered long ago. Ukraine is now recruiting mostly among the unwilling. Um, Aaron, of course, this is not unusual. You know, most, you know, most total war situations require some form of conscription. They can't just sort of rely on the enthusiasm of the population to, to keep um, volunteering themselves to stand in harm's way. But I suppose the story at the start of the Ukraine war was this huge popular explosion, a genuine popular explosion of people wanting to resist the Russian invasion. You saw sort of people make those Molotov cocktails in, in Ukrainian town squares, lots of people volunteering to join the army. It, it does seem that at this stage in the war, you know, the keen 
or many of the keen have been killed. And now what you've got is this real hard slog where you've got loads of people going to the front line and dying. And you are having to, I suppose, forcefully conscript people into the army to put themselves in, in, in harm's way. Now, none of this is to say, oh, my God, the Ukrainians are trapped by Zelensky and they don't actually want to be in this fight. And they're, you know, they're just dragging their heels and this is all being done against their will. Now, everything indicates that the people of Ukraine want to resist Russia and they see this as worth it. But, you know, it's, it, it seems very different to how it did at the start of this war, doesn't it? Very different and in many different ways. Uh, but on the point of, of the conscripts, Michael, and this is something you try to talk about on Twitter, and it's frankly impossible to have a sensible conversation about this on Twitter. The longer this goes on, the more existential this becomes for Ukraine. And that's why Russia wants a war of attrition. Uh, because if you look at the sort of demographic pyramid of Ukraine, obviously you've had depopulation there o over the last sort of 30 years. Uh, birth rates have collapsed over the last 30 years. Millions of Ukrainians reside beyond that country's borders because, of course, there were just better economic and political opportunities elsewhere. Um, there was very little consent for the political system that they had um, until Zelensky. Zelensky became something of a unifying figure, particularly with, with, with regards to um, national security after Russia invaded. But he, he was seen as something of a unifying figure, uh, although, of course, he is, you know, he, he's a player within a broader system, which we have to be quite realistic and honest about, is controlled by oligarchs, right? who have their various regional coalitions and interests. Um, so yeah, war of attrition is very bad news for Ukraine. And it does annoy me and upset me and anger me, frankly, when I see sort of Westerners or Western journalists, Western influencers going, this has to go on for as long as possible until Ukraine wins, because that's music to the ears of the Kremlin. Now, I'm not stressing they have to you know, wave the white flag or give up. Uh, but I, when people say that, I don't think they realize how weak Ukraine's demographic pyramid is and what that means. You know, they have a population around a quarter of that of Russia's. Russia also has a low birth rates, aging population, um, but it's, it's all times bigger. So A, that means it's going to have a much longer enduring capacity to fight a war unless there's a complete lack of domestic confidence in the Kremlin, which of course is why a lot of people were getting so excited about the Prigozhin stuff uh, a few months back. But all things being equal, they, they will just grind the Ukrainians down. And in response, somebody might say, well, you could have said the same thing about the United States occupation of, of Vietnam. Right? We've had many wars of national liberation where a much smaller country has defied a much larger one. And that's true. But the point is, in those cases, you know, the median age of, of, of the average Vietnamese male during the 60s, 70s, I think they were teenagers, early 20s. The median age for the average Ukrainian male is 40, 40 plus. And realistically, in that context, Michael, it means you have very few options with regards to conscription. As the Vietnamese were fighting uh, the Americans, they had an almost limitless supply of able-bodied young men under 30, 35. Ukrainians don't. And this is a relatively new variable, actually, in terms of global conflict, because, you know, average ages are much higher than they used to be because we have lower birth rates and people are, are living longer. So uh, I think it's a little bit outlandish, frankly, to think that, that a, a longer war and that Russia... Uh, Ru Ukraine, rather, should continue for as long as possible. The, the idea that that's in their interest, uh, I think, is misguided. And actually, take it to its logical conclusion. If you saw something like a five, ten-year war, I think, frankly, Russia would would decimate Ukraine's ability to even sustain itself as a polity. That's just my read on it. Now, people are welcome to disagree. I think that's because of its, like I say, its, its demographic pyramid and so on. People are welcome to disagree. 
Um, but I think that's a very real possibility. And I think, frankly, that underscores and underpins Russia's strategy here. Uh, we got a, a an update. The New York Times now is suggesting that American military analysis um, suggests that the plane was brought down by an explosion. So not uh, a missile from outside, but an explosion on it. They say it could be a bomb or adulterated fuel um, is being explored. Um, so it, it seems as if you know, the, the plane was tampered with before it took off, either by planting a bomb or, or tampering with something else. Um, so this is American intelligence suggesting it wasn't blown out of the sky, which is, I think, what what most analysts seem to have been pointing to in the media today. Um, before we move on, Alan, I suppose the counter to what you've just said might be that look, the, the nature of warfare has changed somewhat. Yes, this seems to be like kind of an old-fashioned war in terms of a war of attrition, but were Ukraine to, to get much higher tech military equipment, then maybe that would swing the dial. And even without sort of a, a limitless supply of soldiers, they could push Russia back with increased sort of drones or F-16s. They're getting delivered some jets now um, or, you know, long-range missiles. What do you make of the idea that maybe the Ukrainians, their strategy is just to stay in this long enough to build up sufficient Western arms that they can, you know, the stalemate can be broken? So I'm not a military theorist. I'm not a military historian. I talk about the demographic angle because that's something I do know something about and I think I can add value to our audience. Uh, but that, that is the counter-argument. And, and the reason why we're seeing the counter-offensive, Michael, the whole point of the counter-offensive, it wasn't to get the Russians out of Ukraine. That would have been nice. But it was to basically create a much better and superior situation for the Ukrainians to negotiate a peace settlement from. That was the hope, right? Had the Russians on the back foot, present Putin with the possibility of a, of a route and a, and a huge political humiliation for him at home. And you might have seen something like, okay, we'll normalize relations in Crimea and we have to return to the status quo ante of, you know, uh, January 2022, right? So you might have Crimea, might be a special zone, administered jointly, you have to leave the Donbass, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Something like that. I'm, I'm not suggesting the Ukrainians should accept that or whatever, but I think that was the point of the counteroffensive. And when people say, well, the counteroffensive isn't going as well as it should be, that's what they're referring to. Okay, well, the bargaining position now of Kyiv isn't what we would have hoped. The point about the technology is really interesting because actually Russia's war machine, its capacity to produce armaments has been pretty good. And obviously Ukraine is dependent upon um, Western arms manufacturers for many bits of kit. And actually many of those haven't been able to step up. It's been a really interesting, I mean, that's a, not a nice word to use, but it is frankly of importance going forward to you know security across um, Western Europe, they haven't been able to ramp up production of armaments like the Russians have, um, and this is something which is concerning increasingly. You know the US as well, Germany, for instance, early doors in this conflict, Schultz and whatnot, they were making big commitments around what they would spend on uh, military spending, higher percentage of GDP, rearmament. That's how it was being presented. A lot of that's kind of just gone out the window now. There isn't the political appetite for that in, in Western Europe, Germany onwards, basically. There obviously is, for entirely explicable, understandable reasons, in Latvia, Estonia, Finland, uh, but Italy, France, Germany, they feel rather differently about it. So, uh, yeah, on th in theory, you're absolutely right. Yeah, maybe, um, although the Ukrainians have already had a huge sort of technological bonanza sent their way, it's allowed them to defend themselves, but it hasn't given them you know, a, a, a clinical advantage. So, um, you know, I, I, I don't know, Michael. And it's important to say there's lots of variables, right? You know, anything could happen. Nobody's suggesting this will happen or that will happen. But if you 
take a step back and like I say, you look at the demographic picture, for instance, you know, that, that clearly favors the Russians. Or another one, and I'll finish on this, Michael, is the longer this goes on, the more likely it is that one of the Western powers, particularly the United States, withdraws political support from Ukraine. Okay? That might be two years, that might be five years, that might be 15 years. But the longer it goes on, the more likely it is to happen. Clearly, the possibility of it is a function of, of, of time, the passing of time. It could happen as soon as 2024, 2025. And of course, the possibility of a Trump presidency or even a Republican back in the Oval Office is a clear consideration again for the Russians. So I think you look at the demographics, you look at the sort of the contingency and the dependence of Ukraine on goodwill from overseas. And I think these are two massive variables which would indicate you know, that they're in trouble, which, you know, when you look at that map and they're on a counteroffensive and they've actually taken back some parts of the country they'd previously lost, like Kherson, a massive city, massive population area, well, why would they be downbeat? That's the reason why. Next story. Top GCSE results have fallen in England after the government followed through on its plans to eliminate grade inflation that occurred during the course of the COVID pandemic. This chart shows the percentage of students achieving grade 7 and above by year. So grade 7 and above is equivalent to an A grade. Um, For all students, that was 21.9% in 2019. It rocketed to 30% by 2021 and has now fallen back to 22.4%. As you can also see from this chart, in every year, girls outperform boys when it comes to those top grades. And the proportion of GCSE results recording a fail grade is also back to 2019 levels after declining during the pandemic. That was when grades were teacher assessed. Now, worryingly, regional inequality has increased with the gap between London and the South East and the North of England widening. Um, Following the release of the results, Schools Minister Nick Gibb was challenged on education funding. Before you came into power in 2010, we had reached a high in terms of the amount of money that was being spent per pupil. That was £7,260. Now, according to the IFS, since 2010, that dropped in real terms to reach £6,640 per pupil. So you may say you're putting more money in, but it's still a lot less than it was before 2010 when we look at real terms per pupil. I keep saying this, but you've been in power for 13 years. Why are you still trying to put what it looks like plasters on this issue? No, uh, on the contrary, this, the education reforms have been a huge success. When we came into power in 2010, 68% of schools were good or outstanding. Today, that's 88%. We are rising in the international league tables in terms of the reading ability of, of nine-year-olds. We are now fourth in the world, the best in the West in terms of the reading of our children. We're going up in the international league tables in mass but then, attainment. But then why do we still have this huge disparity then? If the schools are so outstanding, then why is it that if you're poor or disadvantaged or if you go to state school, you are less likely today to open up your envelope and find good GCSE, GCSE results and therefore probably less likely to do well at your A-levels and less likely to go to university. Why do we still have disparity if we're still if we're so outstanding? We had a problem over COVID uh, because it's absolutely true that children from disadvantaged backgrounds suffered disproportionately uh, during the COVID pandemic. The home life is uh, difficult. There's no, no space to work and so on. They did suffer disproportionately. But our reforms but, but, before the pandemic but, but, had closed our attainment gap. Earlier today, I spoke to Baz Ramaya, head of policy at the Centre for Education and Youth and a former GCSE teacher. I asked him for his main takeaways from today's results. 
So I think, as we all know, over the pandemic period, uh, the education system wasn't really in a position to run formal examinations. So we used a different system of uh, assessment where teachers used their own experience and their own judgment to assign grades to pupils. Now, the result of that was that the number of passing grades and the number of top grades at GCSEs, but also at A-levels, increased quite a lot. And then in 2022, when we were just coming out of the pandemic and exams were kind of returning, the government wanted to try and reach a sort of middle point between 2022 and 2019, just before the pandemic. So uh, the number of top grades that were awarded at GCSE and A-level decreased, but not by loads. But this year, the government was really clear that what they want to do is they basically want to get the number of top grades being awarded at GCSE to pretty much where they were pre-pandemic. So what the grades looked like in 2019. And that's pretty much what's happened today. Uh, if you look at the number of top grades awarded in pretty much any subject, and they're basically around about the same as what that was awarded in 2019. Um, we haven't got all the data just yet, but we are already seeing some trends in terms of disparities, in terms of where those top grades are going. And these disparities are very unsurprising insofar as they just show the inequality in our education system generally. Uh, we're seeing the north-south gap actually widen this year. So historically, it's always been the case that the south, particularly London, tends to do better academically at GCSE and A-levels than the north, particularly the northeast. We've actually seen that gap widen a little bit this year. I think that's very likely a reflection of the massive increase in child poverty that happened in the northeast over the pandemic period. And we don't quite have the data on this just yet. It's going to come out in autumn. But I think it's very likely from the data that we have seen so far that that gap between rich and poor in terms of how kids from uh, wealthy families do academically compared to those from poor families, I think we're very likely to have seen that widen. And it should be clear that when we looked at the data last year, the gap between rich and poor was the widest that had been in 10 years. So um, it's a lot of the same, basically, a lot of the same inequalities that are always in our education system. Uh, they're just being brought into even sharper relief now that we're out of the pandemic. And Nick Gibb, who's the schools minister, I mean, was challenged on some of these kinds of statistics this morning. And he countered that the government actually have a very good story to tell on education. So he said that when it comes to sort of international league tables, such as PISA, um, the UK have gone up in the rankings when it comes to literacy and numeracy. And he also said that more schools um, are being classed as good um, than they were than when the Tories came into power. I mean, how would you respond to that? I would contest that interpretation of the, the, the PISA data first. I'd say that it's certainly the case that the UK, sorry, England has improved when it comes to maths, but actually hasn't improved when it comes to science or uh, literacy in those, uh, in those assessments, at least. Um, and there's actually been some critical analysis of uh, the way the PISA data is collected that suggests that this data might not be very reliable. So the way PISA works is that you have uh, a sample within a country of around about a thousand young people who are put together and they all sit the same examination in all the countries that do PISA. But there was an analysis by UCL a few years ago that showed that actually what happened in England was that a lot of young people who are lower achieving, who tend to get lower grades, had actually been excluded from that sample. So you're almost loading the dice to make sure that, um, and I'm sure this wasn't deliberate, but whether it was or it wasn't, you're loading the dice to make sure that you're, uh, you end up getting a, a higher score in maths and therefore that you go up in the league table. So I'd be firstly a little bit sceptical of that interpretation of the PISA ranking. But I think in terms of the, uh, the, 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 the government's record here, I think there's a few things to emphasise here. I mean, one is that uh, per-pupil funding went down by 9% in real terms between 2010 and 2020. That's a really significant drop. Over that same period of time, 
The government also cut youth services by 75%, absolutely staggering figure. And the consequence of those cuts to youth services is that a lot of the services that they used to provide to young people, uh, the need for those services hasn't gone anywhere, right? So in fact, actually, a lot of the job of providing those services has gone on to schools. And schools have actually been in the situation where they've not had the funding to be able to provide those services to young people. One of the consequences of that is the widely reported rampant mental health crisis we have among our young people. Um, it was reported just yesterday by the Institute for Fiscal Studies that one in five 16-year-old girls has been referred to NHS mental health services. And this is a consequence of not having those services around schools and schools being in a crippled position where they're not able to provide those services due to this lack of funding. Um, and it's also very easy, I would say, to focus on, um, you know, the core subjects as they're called, you know, maths, uh, English, et cetera, et cetera. But let's look at other subjects. So we've seen a gradual decline um, of uh, participation in creative subjects. So arts, drama, music, uh, GCSE and A-levels. Uh, a really significant decline here. And we know from the survey evidence, we know from interviews with head teachers that a lot of that is because these subjects are quite costly to run. They're quite resource intensive. And the consequence is that schools aren't able to afford to put them on. And with them not being able to put them on means that young people aren't able to participate in these creative subjects. And the consequence of that is that young people aren't getting to come out of school with qualifications in these subjects. And the irony here is that this is actually one of the things that business leaders say that they want. They want young people to be entering the workforce with skills in communication and creativity that you learn from creative subjects. So I think the government's record here is much more mixed than it would have it uh, purport to be. In a broader sense as well, where do you think we are in terms of helping kids catch up from missing school in the pandemic? I mean, as far as I understand it, the rates of truancy have sort of massively gone up. Where do we stand there? Yeah, I mean, attendance is the, the big issue of our time in education. I mean, some of the figures here are absolutely staggering. Um, you know, we, we're talking about frequently hundreds of thousands of young people who are routinely absent from school now. And that is a new phenomenon that's emerged over the pandemic. That is something that is going to require a lot of investment from the government to resolve. Like we don't have a ton of really good evidence about what works to improve attendance. But the evidence that we do have suggests that the best approach is for schools to build relationships with families. And that involves having nominated members of staff in school who have the time to work with those families, understand what those barriers are to getting their, their child into school and work with them to overcome those barriers. And that's, of course, quite labor intensive. It's also cost, consequently quite resource intensive. So schools really need to have the, the money to be able to do this, but they also need to have the guidance to be able to do this. And that's going to involve the government providing that, that guidance, but also supporting the creation of that evidence by running trials on what works here. We also know that one of the really effective ways of catching young people up on learning that they lost over the pandemic period is through experiencing and receiving one-to-one -one and small group tutoring. Now, the government actually already knows this, which is why their flagship policy for catching young people up after the pandemic was what was called the National Tutoring Programme. Great idea. The idea was to give disadvantaged young people, young people on free school meals, access to one-to-one -to -one and small group tutoring. Um, but when we actually look at the data, what happened with that program is that the vast majority of young people who ended up using it were not young people who were on free schools, school meals. They were not young people who were from the most deprived backgrounds. And the consequence is that you have this great idea that's ultimately been poorly delivered by the government. So I think the national tutoring program and one-to-one -one, uh, tutoring generally as an idea for disadvantaged young people has a lot of promise. So the government really needs to be revisiting that program 
thinking about what it's learned over the past few years of delivery, committing more funding to it and understanding how it can deliver it more effectively. So I think those are two ways that we can really go about pulling um, our young people out of the current challenges that they have. But even more fundamental than this is solving the workforce crisis that we have in teaching. I know that there's been a pay deal agreed recently of uh, 6.5%. But according to many analysts, that's not going to be sufficient to overcome the fundamental problem we have in education, which is recruiting enough good teachers and holding on to them once we have them in the profession. And that's going to involve a lot of investment from the government in improving teacher pay and improving teaching working conditions. So uh, at least those three things, I would say. That was former GCSE teacher Basra Meyer, who is now head of policy at the Centre for Education and Youth. Straight on to our next story in news that will surprise nobody we have learned that the asylum backlog is at a record high. Home office figures show that more than 175,000 people were waiting for a decision on whether they will be granted refugee status at the end of June 2023, up 44% from last year. In their defence, the government point to the record numbers of people claiming asylum in Britain. There were almost 100,000 asylum claims made in the year to June, compared to under 50,000 a year for most of the previous two decades. But from an international perspective, these figures are still small for a country of our size. This was an interesting chart from the Home Office report released today. Now, it shows the number of asylum applicants to the UK and the top three countries in the EU from the year ending March 2021 to the year ending March 2023. So it shows you for, for each of those years. Now, the dark blue bar shows asylum applications to Germany, which are always the highest. They reached over 350,000 in the year to March 2023. Next is France with 200,000 applications. That's the grey bar. Um, and Spain had 150,000 applications. The UK, you can see in the light purple, had 100,000. Now, these figures, um, I was surprised because Germany looked sort of higher than I'd seen it before. These figures include main asylum applicants and their dependents. So sometimes when people apply for asylum, they say, I want refugee status and I also want my family to have it. So that's why those numbers um, look a bit higher than figures I've seen elsewhere. Um, the Home Office report also notes that when looking at asylum applications as a proportion of the total population of a recipient country, Britain comes in 21st, um, in 21st place compared to the rest of Europe. So we, by no measure, um, take a disproportionate amount of, of asylum seekers, quite the opposite. Um, the statistic I found most interesting, though, was this. The top two countries of origin for people crossing the channel on small boats between January and June this year were Afghanistan and Iran, right? So it's people crossing boats, which are you know, the big um, political story. That's what Rishi Sunak is talking about. And the top two nationalities, Iran and Afghanistan. Um, now, Aaron, I saw you today pointing out on Twitter that these are two countries um, against which the UK has economic sanctions placed. Um, so explain to us why you think that's significant. Well, I think it underscores a real inconsistency in terms of foreign policy and, and actually, you know, rhetoric around... Um, around migration policy in this country too. So on the one hand, somebody will say, those are awful regimes. And I agree, by the way. Um, those are awful regimes. We have to get rid of them. That's why sanctions are justified. Okay. Well, if they're such awful regimes, then surely you will allow anybody fleeing them asylum in this country. Oh, oh no, we, we can't do that. So it's got to be one or the other. Either they're so bad they merit uh, sanctions because you want to see effectively regime change or they're sufficiently okay that you won't accept refugees from them. You, you can't have both of these things. You can't have both these things. You know, it's like Schrodinger's, Schrodinger's foreign policy. You know, they're so awful we have to have sanctions on them, but they're not so awful that we have to accept people fleeing them. 
fleeing persecution or um or you know state breakdown or low-level civil war or uh, theocratic government very strange and then on the one hand you'll have often with the same people having this real inconsistency and let's be honest they're mostly from the right uh, they will say, well, these aren't really refugees. They're economic migrants. They're coming here to improve their lives. Well, the distinction between economic migrant and refugee is pretty slim most of the time, but it's particularly slim when you're talking about a country which is being subject to some of the harshest sanctions in human history, which is the case with Iran. The whole point of sanctions is to economically strangle a country. So yes, inevitably, people will leave because they want to make a better life for themselves elsewhere. Now, I'm not necessarily making a comment here on whether or not there should be sanctions on those two countries. I don't think there should be. There most certainly shouldn't be on Afghanistan, I think. It was like, well, it's such an awful regime. They're awful to women. We need to get rid of it. Who do you think suffers from the sanctions? You think it's government officials in Kabul? But who do you think sanctions affect? Who, who do you think they affect when there's tens of millions of people in a particularly harsh winter in Afghanistan facing starvation? Who do you think the sanctions impact? Or in Iran? Who do you think after 30, 40 years of sanctions, who do you think is affected the most in Iran by the sanctions? You know, my auntie, Michael, she had 10,000 pounds of life savings in HSBC when it operated in Iran. She's, she's lost it for good. My auntie. She's a, a woman. She was a businesswoman. She's very, you know, got very liberal values. She studied in France before the revolution. She's lost her life savings. You think the, the sons and daughters of regime and elite figureheads, whether they're religious or political or in the revolutionary guard, you think they're suffering? No, they're driving around in Lamborghinis and Bugattis and have multiple properties and, and, and they're fine. Sanctions don't hurt people like that. Sanctions have embedded and enhanced and solidified and strengthened regime in Iran over 30, 35 years. So I, I don't think they're a good idea, particularly in relation to this. I mean, it just makes a mockery of foreign policy. It makes a complete mockery of foreign policy. Oh, no, they're not leaving their countries because, you know, they're, they're racked by economic ruin. But we also have a policy of inflicting economic ruin on those same countries. It doesn't make any sense. Now, if you say this, of course, on Twitter, people say, you're an apologist to the Taliban. You're an apologist for Iran. No, I'm just trying to be coherent and inconsistent. I know those things aren't particularly fashionable in British politics right now, but they kind of matter to me. And I think they should matter to anybody of aggressive or socialist bent. I was thinking about this today. I mean, I totally agree with your, your idea of Schrodinger's foreign policy, but I also do think that sanctions probably do directly cause more people to come here and claim asylum because people say, oh, well, this is, you know, sanctions affect the economy of a country. So that's actually separate from asylum. Asylum is all about human rights and persecution. But I imagine... You know, and again, this is rather speculative, but it seems very coherent to me, right? Is that you'll have lots of people who are subject to persecution, but if they have, you know, an economically decent enough standard of living, that's probably going to be an argument. Obviously, you know, traveling overland to get to Britain is, you know, the most risky, horrible, I can't imagine doing it, right? So your motive for leaving has to be really, really strong. Now, for many people, there's going to be, it's going to be the case that they, they, they could have a valid asylum claim in the West, but, you know, they think they, they're better off sort of trying to, to stay safe in their country of origin than come all the way to Europe. Now, it, it seems to me that it could be the case that economic sanctions and sort of 
economic misery can be the straw that breaks the camel's back, right? So it could be people who are sort of willing to to tolerate that persecution or at least, you know, try and keep their heads down. But if you're both subject to persecution and subject to economic impoverishment, then that's obviously going to make more people want to come to the UK. So it does seem to me that there probably is a rather direct relationship between sanctioning these countries and people wanting to leave them to come here. 100%. Again, any you know, you don't need a university degree or masters in foreign affairs or international relations to understand that. In fact, the people with those qualifications, Michael, are the least likely to understand that somehow. Somehow, you can have so much education, be so informed, be such a high IQ, you know, commentator that actually something as fundamental as well if somebody's more liable to starve or they can't earn a living, they're more likely to leave a country as an independent variable, forget all the other stuff. If that's the case, they're more likely to leave, clearly. That's lost on them, Michael. It is lost on them, somehow. If you look at Iran, for instance, it's very similar in some ways to East Germany in so much as you've got a highly educated um, workforce, often very ambitious, perfectly familiar with cutting-edge technologies, lots of engineers, lots of graduates, particularly in STEM. Um, and yet, you know, there are the problems with the regime, of course, and there are equally problems with the economy. High inflation, relatively high unemployment. And if you're not from a middle-class, upper-middle-class family up, with connections, you're not really going to be able to make the kind of life that you think you deserve for yourself in that country. So they will leave. So there's a confluence there of, like you say, political variables, social variables, cultural variables, but also economic variables. Somebody might, and this is a calculation. I don't understand why it's so black and white in the in the conversation in this country. Somebody might say, well, I'm a Kurdish speaker. Um, there's repression of my culture and language, but I can navigate it in certain ways. I need to stay here for certain things, by the way. It's not just, you know, there are some poll factors in terms of what would keep you in a country. All my family's here. All the people I know are here. I might have caring responsibilities. I might have somebody I love here. I might already have children here and I don't want to take them with me. So there's so much at play. Um, and of course, like you say, the idea that the, the economy doesn't uh, figure here or can't be the straw that breaks the camel's back is just is utterly naive. Like, I, I would find it a ridiculous argument if it was being put forward by a first-year undergraduate student, and yet it's the common sense of the political and media class in this country. Utterly naive. Of course people leave countries um, with, you know, their economic well-being as, as part of the reason why. I'm not saying that all the people coming from Afghanistan and Iran are, you know, are doing so because of economic um, conditions. I'm not saying that. Again, that's one of those kind of dummy talking points, which inevitably goes on in, on, you know, in your Twitter replies when you try and say something sensible. When you try and say, how about we have a coherent foreign policy? How about we have two sentences here which are coherent and make sense as logical premises, like, uh, with, as we said earlier, Schrodinger's foreign policy? Then you get, oh, you think people are leaving Afghanistan because they, they you know, because they can't make enough money because they can't get a, you know, a Volkswagen car. Come on, just crap. That's not what I've said. That's not what I've said. So I'm very glad we're discussing it here, Michael, because often YouTube is a much better place for thoughtful, nuanced discussion, often with disagreement, uh, but in a useful, productive way than Twitter. We have got a thoughtful, nuanced question, I think. Um, Teresa Easton with a super chat. Can Aaron explain why sanctions against South Africa were important or sanctions against Israel? I don't think there are sanctions against Israel, but you know, people demand sanctions against Israel. So what's your take on that? Why does sanctions sometimes work, but most of the time not work? Yeah, it's a great question. There are no sanctions on Israel. Um, and I think there is the BDS movement. There's a, there's a very broad spectrum here. So some people want to boycott Israeli goods, particularly goods made in the occupied territories. That is different from sanctions. I would be the first to say, in fact, if there were sanctions applied on Israel by the whole West, I think that would radicalize the regime, actually. 
I think that's quite an obvious statement to make, isn't it? You know, you, you, you would more likely see the rise of a military strongman. It probably would embolden and empower more sort of fanatical extreme elements within Israeli civil society because they say, we've got nobody to look after us, guys, okay? You know, the, the idea of a negotiated settlement with Palestine, I mean, it would be dead if there was, you know, sanctions from everybody. So I think actually that bolsters my point. Um, I, I think you might say have sanctions with regards to Israel on particular things. You know, you might say, well, look, you... You you have they didn't sign non-proliferation treaties, but you might say that you know they, they can't get certain materials to make nuclear weapons, for instance. Uh, but the idea that you would apply the kinds of sanctions on Israel that you have on Iran, medicine, for instance, ability of people to access cash, I wouldn't want the average Israeli, Michael, not being able to access medicines. I've seen what that does to Iranians. It's disgusting. Okay, South Africa, a very very different example because you had a country of literally several million white people and tens of millions of black people. And the the state of, and the conditions in which those black people lived was already horrendous. It was horrendous. So, you know, the, the median life experience of somebody in Iran is incomparable to somebody in a, in a township in Johannesburg in the 1980s. You, they're incomparable. Um, Afghanistan and, and South Africa might be more interesting, but again, it's a very fluid one. And I think, you know, I think it does underplay the, the extent which, of course, there is a measure of consent for the, the, the administration in Kabul. Of course, of course there is. Again, you have to be very, I'm not saying everybody loves them. I'm sure many people hate them. I'm sure most women hate them. Whatever. There has to be because we know that as America drew down its presence in that country, there was a regime there which was, you know, had was the result of, of, of allegedly nationally democratic elections. It collapsed. There was not consent for that regime. There is more consent for this regime. If there wasn't consent for this thing, it would also collapse. So again, I'm not saying that the Taliban are wonderful. I'm saying, and it's an open question, right? I could be wrong. What's ideal in terms of maximizing the rights and civil liberties of Afghans? What's ideal in terms of creating the possibility for a better trajectory for the country? And what mitigates the worst excesses of, for instance, famine, like we saw, I think, maybe last winter or the winter before that, uh, that one, I think maybe it was last winter, where tens of millions of Afghans were facing food deprivation, facing starvation. So in that context, like, do sanctions help or hinder? I don't think they're particularly useful. Now people can disagree. I think, for instance, the trajectory we were on with Iran in the early 2000s, where there, there was a lessening of sanctions, there was a diplomatic sort of thaw between Britain and Iran, European Union and Iran. Jack Straw was going to Iran, it seemed, every 10 minutes when you had Khatami in charge, who was seen as a more sort of moderate uh, presidential figure. That was very good for Iran. That empowered more moderate liberal elements massively. Um, and again, with the, with the Obama deal, that emboldened and empowered more liberal elements. What Trump did is actually uh, to justify the position of ultranationalists and authoritarians. So I just don't think it works. I think it worked in South Africa. I wouldn't actually say it'd be a good idea for Israel. I think that shows the consistency in my, in my thinking. Um, and I, I mean, sanctions very rarely work. A boycott is very different, by the way, and there's a great history of boycotts functioning, particularly in regards to specific businesses or specific industries. Um, and I think a boycott of, of goods made in the occupied territories is entirely justified. Um, but it's a very, very uh, nuanced uh, position. But I actually think this default of, we don't like those people. Sanctions, more often than not, that's the wrong position to take because they hurt ordinary people. My, my auntie's lost her life savings, mate. 
She's lost them. And the idea that I'm some Iranian apologist, oh, you're, you're apologist. The regime in Iran being what it is has massive material implications for me and my family, right? If it was a liberal democratic government, you know, we love human rights, free flow of capital, foreign investment, it would have massively positive implications for me, right? So when I say that I think sanctions are bad for Iran, I'm saying that because I believe it. Let's go to our final story. Um, Labour membership fell by 25,000 in 2022, but the party remains in good financial health. That's the news from a new release by the Electoral Commission. This is the write-up from the Press Association. Annual accounts published by the Electoral Commission show Labour had 407,000 members at the end of 2022, down almost 25,000 compared with 2021. This was well below the recent membership peak recorded at the end of 2019 when there were 532,000 Labour members. But Labour still achieved some of its highest income levels outside an election year, raising £47.2 million and returning a £2.7 million surplus after losing £5.2 million pounds in 2021. Um, significantly, that 47 million figure means Labour have out-earned the Conservatives, who drew in only £30 million pounds last year. Um, Aaron, what's the significance of these figures? Membership numbers down, um, income up? Well, for me, what was really interesting, Michael, is, you know, th this is good, by the way. Uh, if you look at Labour, for instance, um, in the early 2000s, Prior to even Corbyn, the finances of the country were just continually in a perilous state. You know, the country was on the verge of bankruptcy um, in the sort of you know the late Blair, early Brown years. This is good, Michael, but I have some other figures. So, did you say? Sorry, you said the country. I think you meant the party, right? Uh, yeah, we can. We, I can say it again from the top if you like. The yeah, party was in a perilous state. Well, the, the country too after the financial crisis, but the party was in a perilous state uh, around two thousand seven, two thousand eight. Uh, but some of the numbers here under Corbyn are also very good. Um, Labour raised £55.8 million in 2017. Now, important to say that was a general election year, but still a massive, massive figure. In 2018-2019, they raised £45 million under Corbyn. Uh, what's interesting here is, of course, that Labour is still doing well, raising significant amounts of cash very well. Very well, like I say, incomparable to the later Blair years or the Ed Miliband years, the Gordon Brown years but they're much less dependent upon membership subs than they would have been under Corbyn. So by my calculations, I wrote a piece about this for Navarra Media last year, and actually the data we're seeing today kind of continues that, but it's just a very gentle fall. Um, uh, my calculations last year were that Labour, as a result of you know fewer members, were probably down between at least four and five million pounds a year. So clearly that shortfall has been made up in money coming from elsewhere. Now, I think it's important to say, if you want to be a political party, you need money. You know, um, and I think you shouldn't necessarily just say we don't want donations from you know private individuals. Dale Vince, for instance, you know, if Dale Vince offered Labour 1.5 million, which he has, I would not say no, reject that. However, of course, when you move away from a system of membership fees, increasingly, and it's still primarily membership fees, as I understand it, increasingly to uh, money from corporates, big business, of course, there's going to be an element of corporate capture. And I think I saw SSE will be one of the companies at um, Labour Conference in October. You know, it's 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 a bit hard. Let's be honest, it's a bit harder to criticise you know energy companies, water companies, banks if they're giving you money. I mean, that's why they do it. You know, that's why they do it. Uh, so um, I'm not going to bash Starmer or Labour on this. It's, they need the money. It's good they raise the money. They they have to do that in order to beat the Tories, who remain 
for now at least, the party of, you know, the 0.001%. Uh, but it's something to keep an eye on, particularly in an election year. Um, and I think, you know, there is a very real possibility, Michael, that over the next sort of 18 months, the Labour Party becomes the sensible party of the centre-right, you know. Now, I know to some people, that's music to their ears, because it would basically be fatal for the Tories. If they do do that, then it means a lot more money will be flowing in. But there is a huge downside there, which is, you know, we really have corporate capture of both major parties, and there is a there's little substantial difference between them in terms of solving the major problems affecting most people. Let's wrap up there. Thank you, Aaron, for joining me tonight. Always very interesting. My pleasure, Michael. Um, yeah, we covered a lot of uh, topics. So expertly chaired as ever, and we're a few minutes under, under time. So well done you. <laughs> thank you very much. Uh, thank you, everyone, for watching this evening as well. This show will be back tomorrow from 6pm. For now, you've been watching Navarra Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navarra Media. Go to navaramedia.com slash support.